news. You need the front page every hour on the press box. Nothing's writing on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. And now, the news. The Red Sox, Blue Jays, and Yankees. All won last night. The American League wildcard race is the Red Sox in the first wildcard spot, a game and a half out of Toronto. The Toronto Blue Jays are in the number two spot. And the Yankees sitting on the outside, a half game behind Toronto. The Yankees do get to play Boston this weekend and the Blue Jays next week. Adam, are the Yankees going to make the playoffs? The New York Yankees are not going to make the playoffs. Uh, They are the clear, most flawed team of those three that you just mentioned. The Toronto Blue Jays right this moment are probably either the second or third best team in the American League. So they are probably going to get in. Uh, I don't believe that this Boston Red Sox six-game winning streak is necessarily real. However, it has built them a two-game lead in the loss column over the Yankees with only a couple of weeks of baseball to go. So I think Boston and Toronto are your wildcard teams. How long ago was that Yankees win streak? Um, it happened in 2014. <laughs> you were You thought they were getting in then, didn't you? I'm, did I think they were going to follow a 13-game win streak with, um, you know, ending up with eight losses to Baltimore on the season? No, I, I did not think that was going to be the outcome. Poor Rizzo. So, okay, you say Toronto's playing like the second or third best team in the American League. I think I agree with that because as an Astros fan, they're the team outside of Tampa that I think I least would want to play in the playoffs, right? Or on the American League side in the playoffs right now. So... I don't know that you're so much scared of Tampa Bay as you're scared of Randy or Rosarino. Yes, I, um, I am scared of a team that doesn't make any damn sense. They're not any good, but they're actually good. I kind of feel like this is all about you not having to watch another entire season of MLB TV highlights of Randy or Rosarina doing things against the that is, Astros, that right? That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Randy or Rosarina sets another record. Oh, great. How many home runs has he hit since then? Seven? I don't like Something it. like that. Unbelievable. Randy Rose Arena. Not a fan of that. I, okay. How are the Tampa Bay Rays good? You're asking the wrong person, man. I don't get it. I can understand how the run prevention side works because this team works this wizardry every single year, right? They've allowed 632 runs. Somehow the Jays have uh, allowed less than that. Um, and they've scored 800 runs. They've scored 12 less runs than an Astros offense that we know is good. They've somehow turned guys like Mike Zanino into actual offensive forces. So uh, that's the part I don't get. I, I understand the run prevention. I have no idea how they're the second highest scoring team in the American League. It makes no sense because just like so to take the Astros, the Astros have six hitters that are top 70 in OPS this season. They would have seven if Alex Bregman had played enough games to be eligible, but he's not. But the Astros basically have seven guys who are top 70 in baseball in OPS. The Blue Jays have a bunch of guys like Brett Phillips and G-Man Choi whose OPS is like 720, and somehow they platoon those guys with the rest of their lineup into the second-highest-scoring offense in baseball. It do, I, I do not get how they score runs. All while Brandon Lau, who is supposed to be one of their best hitters, has been carrying like a 220 average the entire season. Like, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Rosarena has been good. Wander Franco has been 
up and down. Like there are reasons to look at last year's team and then look at this year's team and say, oh, well, I get well, how they're a little better. Yeah, a little better. Not to the point where they are the second highest scoring team in baseball. Tampa Bay Rays. Do you want to guess how many players they have in the top 70 of OPS this year? I'm going to say one. No, they have three, actually, because Randy Arozarena and Brandon Lau is in there because he's hit like 35 home runs or something like right. that. But three. They have three guys in the top 70, and somehow they're just as good as a team that has seven guys in the top 70. Next question. The St. Louis Cardinals have won 10 straight games. They have a four-game lead for the final wild card spot in the National League. Also, the Padres lost to the Giants last night, so they are five games out of the final wild card spot. Uh, how the hell did the Cardinals do this? They kind of came out of nowhere to steal that from not only the Padres, but the Reds definitely thought they had a shot for a while too. The Reds had the softest schedule in the National League about a month ago, and somehow they have not been able to turn that into doing anything. They're 3-7 and seven in their last 10 games, and the St. Louis Cardinals Owners of a plus seven run differential. And again, <laughs> I don't put everything on run differential. A 20 to nothing game one direction or the other can skew that enormously. But when your run differential is basically even, that is notable. They have scored 635 runs. The only teams in the National League who have scored less have been eliminated from contention. The Miami Marlins and the Arizona Diamondbacks. And I guess I have to throw the abysmal Mets in there too. This is unbelievable unbelievable i don't get it with st louis at all and and somehow you know who's doing it adam wainwright who's almost my age he <laughs> has become a renaissance pitcher where not only is he hanging around as one of those guys where you're like wait a minute he's still in the league he's actually been really good so he's striking out a guy in inning and leading this rotation and they haven't even had any great performances offensively this year, but yet somehow they're getting enough out of Arenado, enough out of Goldschmidt. Tyler O'Neill has come on for them that they're going to end up in the wild card game. And here's the ridiculous part. You're going to end up with either the 100-win Giants or the 100-win Dodgers having to deal with an even run differential team in a winner-take-all nine-inning situation. Man, you know, that's a great question. I got one more baseball thing for you. Shohei Otani. Here's a stat from uh, MLB Stats. Shohei Otani has homered in 13 games this season where the Angels have lost by four or more runs. That ties the 1999 Cubs and Sammy Sosa for the most losses by four-plus when a player has homered. I'm going to go back to a tweet that I first saw in, like, May of this year, and I'm going I'm to screw it up, and I apologize for that to, uh, to whoever wrote it. But it said, how many times have we seen a headline that looks like this? Shohei Otani does something amazing. Mike Trout homers and the Angels somehow lose again. Like, that's pretty much the situation we've been looking at all year for the Angels. By the way, and, and this is not to impugn anyone's injury status or, or, or anything like that, but have you ever seen a situation like Mike Trout where a calf strain in the first third of the season keeps a guy out the rest of the year just done for i mean i have i have to imagine at some point they were just like yeah we're not making it let's let's just take it as easy as possible but yeah it's it was never supposed to be a season-ending injury and mike trout's just been gone forever i mean do you want to play for the angels yeah as opposed to what i do now yeah sure Absolutely. great question awesome. thank you the league's cup final is tonight at Allegiant Stadium. 
I'm not expecting there to be a big crowd at this one. Tyler, um, <laughs> what's got, the League's Cup? You got some insight for me? Um, so, okay. Actually, no, no. The League's Cup is going to be more fun now. So they actually made an announcement yesterday. The League's Cup is a, well, technically three years old, but only the second edition here of Major League Soccer playing League MX, League MX from Mexico. And in the, it's been a eight-team tournament where each team just sends four random teams to it. But they actually announced it's going to be expanded starting in 2023. Both leagues are going to put all of their teams in it. It's going to be a World Cup-style tournament. And both teams are going to put their leagues on pause in the summer. So starting in 2023, we're going to get every, say, July or something like that, this tournament between Liga MX and MLS. And I think it's going to be phenomenal. Tonight is just sort of a precursor to that, where the Seattle Sounders are going to play Leon for the League's Cup trophy. I got to take a picture of that yesterday. I saw that. Um, is that why you went to Seattle? Was it a scouting trip on the Sounders? No, they were actually on the road. I wish they had been at home. We would have oh, gone to that, too. But, yeah, they yeah. were on the road. Not as much fun. But I'm very excited tonight, and I'm very excited for the future because I think the League's Cup is going to be I think it's going to be genuinely fun. I know you don't care that much about Major League Soccer or Mexican soccer, but I think it's going to be genuinely fun to have every summer this World Cup-style tournament between Major League Soccer and the, all the teams in Mexico as well. The most important part of all of this for me is hearing that Elysian Stadium is attracting big events and continuing to pay for that stadium. Well, I don't know if tonight would be considered a big event. Like I'm expecting, it's an event. I'm expecting like 20,000 people. And I paid $20 to park, and I have zero concerns that I'm going to be able to park and leave without, without sitting in traffic. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to be perfectly fine getting in and out of the stadium tonight. So I don't know if we'd call tonight a big event. Are they shutting down the bridge? I have no idea. Will you be trolling Cassie Soto about this in some way? Uh, oh, that's a good, I should ask if her boyfriend is a fan of Leon, because if they are, I absolutely will. If not, I don't think she'll care too much about Leon losing to the Seattle Sounders. Mm, disappointing. That's a great, great question. Colorado State and Air Force are the most likely teams to leave the Mountain West for the American Athletic Conference. Mark Ziegler reported that over the weekend. Um... I'm curious your thoughts on Colorado State and Air Force and if you think it would be smart of them to leave the Mountain West. I kind of feel like you're leaving the Mountain West for the Mountain West East. Like, I, I don't really necessarily understand what you're gaining by going to a weakened AAC that has just lost its best teams to the Big 12. I, I really, what are you gaining if you're those teams other than some really nasty travel, right? Like, Are, are you looking forward to jackass into east carolina like i don't know <laughs> the only thing that makes sense possibly to me is air force trying to team up with navy and army if the american would somehow add all of those schools to basically say hey yeah this is your conference for the service academies for colorado state it's a lateral step like i don't i don't get exactly where colorado state would be going with that um unless you're just so unhappy with something that's happened in the mountain west that you can view it as, hey, it's a lateral move and we won't be as unhappy as we were before, but every conference is going to have problems. It's not like they're going to go to Colorado State and ever, or go to the AAC and everything Colorado State's been upset about would suddenly be fixed. So I will say, Tyler, I think the one thing that would be fixed now that I give this a little more thought is the TV situation, right? I mean, the AAC at least has a representative TV situation when it comes to ESPN as opposed to the Mountain West where... I really should be keeping an actual tally of this, but I think the number of games that have started on CBS Sports Network.com 
as opposed to CBS Sports <laughs> Network this year is now up to like 17 through three weeks of football. Just a given. You just have to accept it. I mean, listen, if you do the AAC, all their games are going to be on ESPN Plus anyways. Well, that actually is a is a fair assessment. Uh, so, yeah, apparently, you know, uh, Colorado State would be leaving the Mountain West just for the purpose of no longer having driving games. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. All right. Coming up next, Sam Gordon joins the show. Yeah, I mean, the first things first is, is, is kids are resilient as, as anything. They're more resilient than us as adults. That's the reality of it. And then the residual effect with a team that that well coached and been together that long, there, there won't be much. They're going to come in here and do their job, play hard. Matt's got them going uh, the right direction. I saw him when he first got there at Iowa State. And, and when I was thinking it was 2016, I was at Oklahoma State. And I saw, we knew right then that he was changing the culture. They were acting different. They were playing tough. And, um, you know, one of my best friends is from Mount Union as well, so he's got a great background and did a fantastic job. Uh, they'll be they'll be they'll be plenty ready to play, and uh, we're we're excited to get our get our fans in there, man, and, and, and see what we can do. Joining us now from the Review Journal is Sam Gordon. How are you today, Sam? What's up, Tyler? Doing well. How you doing? Good. Um, so I'll, I'll give you I'll just give you. a general question here to start with we've seen nine games of the Marcus Arroyo era we've seen about a hundred different quarterbacks and offensively I don't know that they've looked really good in any of those nine games why do you think they have struggled so much under Marcus Arroyo who came as an offensive coordinator from Oregon so much on the offensive end with Arroyo yeah that's a great question I, I think um I think the biggest thing is is the instability at quarterback and just not having, um, you know, not being able to find one guy to, to, to necessarily build around. And um, that, that's, that to me, I think is, is, is the primary issue where a lot of this stems from. I mean, go, you know, last year you have kind of the, the revolving door of quarterbacks before you settle on Max Gillum. And then, you know, he was relatively limited in what he could do. I think the, the truncated schedule um, didn't necessarily help things by any means in terms of having a first year head coach going there and trying to install his systems and whatnot. And then you saw some of the limitations of, of 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 those truncations when when you saw the game or the the, the schedule last season and then going into this year um, without having kind of a clear cut starter to go to to build around I think that, that kind of previewed some of the struggles and then you you finally have Doug Brumfield who's clearly at this point I, I think so far the most productive of these quarterbacks and gives the offense the most upside he goes in there and, and it has a couple good quarters against. Um, against Eastern Washington, and, and it starts out well against Arizona State, too, leading a couple long drives, and then he goes out with an injury. So there, I think this offense just hasn't been able to establish any kind of continuity because of all the turnover at quarterback. And, and in order for there to be some continuity or, for, or some productivity, I think moving forward, you're going to have to find a quarterback and settle on him. It feels like Brumfield is going to be that guy at least this season. Now it's about you know, making sure he stays healthy. And, and I know he can't always control that. There's, there's, there's things that happen there. It's football. We, we understand that. But uh, it's, I think it's super crucial for him to stay healthy because you're going to improve through getting reps in practice and in games and in game situations. And with all the inexperienced quarterback on this roster, uh, somebody needs to, to take the line, share those reps, and improve it. It feels like it's going to be Brumfield. And, you know, until they get this quarterback situation figured out, until they get some stability at this position, uh, I foresee struggles on this side of the ball, um, you know, moving forward. Sam, it's an era in college football with the transfer portal where you can fill holes in a different way than mm -hmm. you ever have been able to before. And UNLV didn't choose to go that route in the offseason. So I guess what, what I'm trying to figure out here is 
Do you think UNLV and Marcus Arroyo went into this offseason thinking they had the answer somewhere in their quarterback room? Or do you think that somehow that the development has not been what they expected um, thus far? Because it, it would seem to me that you had time to to bring in someone if you didn't think you had the answer in-house. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they probably felt like they had the answer, um, you know, internally. And then I think you, you you go through spring ball and whatnot, and you see, okay, we might need a little bit more depth uh, at this position. I think that's you know part, one of the reasons Tate Martell uh, you joined the team is because you saw you you saw what you had in springtime and thought, wait, why not take a swing? Maybe Tate Martell has some upside. So yeah, I mean, I, I think they 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 might have um, you know kind of mistook what they had, but at the same time. I think we've seen some potential, you know, with Doug Brumfield. Uh, again, it's it's only been a couple quarters of productive football, but I think maybe they evaluated the situation, thought, hey, this can be our guy uh, that we build around, provided he stays healthy and, and, and can continue to develop moving forward. He missed the five the five practices in training camp, um, as, as we know. I'm not sure, you know, I, that that leads into Justin Rogers starting week one. I, I'm not sure what what kind of evaluation went into there maybe it was the, the practice situation they felt like Rodgers had a, a better handle on the office but it's clear that Brumfield at least has the most upside of who we've seen thus far and um and again I mean, you know maybe they thought that they were going to be able to develop him long term and this was kind of an anticipation of this is going to be a two or three year thing uh but but so far we've yet to see kind of those results of those dividends pay off and uh now it's on the, the staff it's on the players but uh, you know more importantly the staff to, to try and get the most out of this group moving forward and continue to build because you know like like we said we, there's no there's been no victory thus far and, and there's clearly a ways to go uh, before this team becomes you know competitive in the Mount West despite having Charles Williams they haven't really run the ball effectively either why do you think mm-hmm. they've struggled so much in that area on offense as well yeah great question I think it's it's, it's because of the, of the struggles in, in the passing game and um and it, you know, the other teams got, have, it's pretty clear they have an understanding that hey until UNLV proves that they can beat us in the passing game Let's just load up against Charles Williams and, and, and stop the run. And he had, you know, the 172-yard game uh, against Eastern Washington in the opener, the one game where the offense at, at points, you know, looked okay. Uh, that was that one game. And Charles Williams, obviously, a big part of that. But then Arizona State, Iowa State, um, have the understanding that UNLV is not, you know, not super dangerous in the passing game. Stock up to, to stop Charles Williams, and they've been really effective in that. Now, you know, that's something I asked Marcus Rory about on Monday during his press conferences, you know, how important is it to get that running game back going? And, you know, he indicated it's twofold. You, you, you have to be able to throw the ball to loosen that, that, that tackle box up a little bit and create some more space for Charles Williams to run the ball. And I think, you know, running the ball effectively would make it easier for the quarterbacks to throw and, and give them an opportunity to make some plays downfield. So it's kind of like a chicken or an egg thing. You know, you, can you pass until you run the ball or can you run the ball without passing? That's, that's what the question is. And that's what the coaching staff, is going to have to figure out because Charles Williams, uh, you know, I think still has too much upside in this offense to be the non-factor um, that he was the last couple of weeks, and they have to figure out how to get him going in Mount West play to ease the burden on whatever quarterback ends up taking the reins. Again, it feels like it's going to be Brumfield, but he would definitely be the beneficiary of a productive running game, and we haven't seen that in a few weeks so far. Sam, you mentioned the press conference on Monday with Marcus Arroyo. What's your sense of, of where he is uh, with this team right now, what's your sense? Do you feel that he uh, he is disappointed in this, or do you feel like this is kind of where he expected this team would be, given the fact that they had a couple of, of um, you know power five teams? Uh, what what do you think he's thinking? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think just kind of if I had to take a guess, I, I would think that he you know is looking at this early part of the schedule and you know very very challenging, especially the two you know the two power five teams that you were faced. I think they clearly let one slip away at Eastern you know against Eastern Washington. You know, had they moved, they made the move to Brumfield sooner. Had he starts the game, um, you you might be looking at a different outcome there. I don't think I think that's you know you can't lose that game knowing that there was a couple power five ranked power five teams on the slate coming up. You can't lose a home game. To Eastern Washington, but I think he, you know, he was looking at this thing that it was going to be a, you know, a two or three year rebuild that it was going to take time to overhaul everything and get his personnel in there and, and get you know, get everybody where they need to be and, and develop this program and develop uh, a culture here. And I think in some ways that you know they've been doing that, but until there's a tangible reflect tangible reflection in, in the win column, um, it's going to be you know I think it's certainly going to be hard to kind of sell that message to the city and the community and the fan base. I think. They're at, they're at the point now where you know they want to see a win, and you know I get that, it's understandably so. And uh, I think there's at the same time some pressure going into Mount West play to, to get it done and to win a couple games. So um, I think you know he's certainly aware of that, but it seems like he's more focused on the process and, and, and the growth and development, and you know building out depth and building some cohesion uh, in this program. It's just a matter of seeing if that's going to translate into wins or not. And so far, you know through a year and some change, it, it hasn't translated into win, win yet. Uh, Sam Gordon with us from the Review Journal also covers the Las Vegas Aces, who got the two seed in the WNBA playoffs. So they're straight into the semifinals. They were the first team in WNBA history to have seven players average 10 plus points over the course of a regular season. Are they going to win the WNBA title or not this year, Sam? Yeah, I I think they're going to get it done this year. Uh, I think they're going to get it done. Now it's it's going to be it's certainly going to be a challenge. We understand that nothing is going to be easy. I think they're probably going to see the Minnesota Lynx in the semifinals. Good team that matches up well with them has the size of Sylvia Fowles to defend um, to defend and to, to to match up with the, with the Aces front court, which is obviously the strength of their team. And then if they if they do reach the finals, Connecticut you know had their number this year with with all three victories, winning all three of those games. But I think playoffs. Little different style of play. You have a little bit more more opportunity to do more thorough scouting. And in, in, the, in the, the case of the Aces, they have a full week um, to get ready to reintegrate Liz Cambage into their lineup and, and to go from there and, and figure out who they're going to play and develop game plans accordingly. But when you take a look at this team, uh, multiple ball handlers that can create for themselves and others. Uh, you have the big, so when the game slows down, you know you you have options um, late in the shot clock. They can play different styles. They can get up and down. Uh, they can they can play in the half court. They can run pick and rolls. They can play through the post. They can downsize. They can go big lineups. They're very very versatile in the way that they can play. And this group is experienced now, having been to the cha- you know having have players back on this team that have been to the championship, uh, been to the finals, and then adding Chelsea Gray, who's, who as we know is a WNBA champion. So I think you look at all the ingredients, all, all the components of this roster, what they went through um, throughout the course of the season. It's time. It's time to make that run and go win a championship. They have the pieces in place. They have the talent. They now have the experience, and uh, and it's time to get it done. They're they're aware of that. There nobody's resting on their laurels in that locker room for, for finishing with the two seed. That it was at the bare minimum the expectation. So um, now now you go out there and, and you throw the ball up in the in WNBA semifinals. But when you look at the talent on this roster, the way that they can play, the different styles that they can play, this is a team that should win the championship uh, this fall and be the first pro sports team in Vegas to bring home a title. Well, he is Sam Gordon from the Review Journal. Sam, as always, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much as well. Talk soon. So there is Sam Gordon. Coming up next, we'll talk to Jason Fitz and find out if he's a believer in the 2-0 Raiders. Aaron Rodgers is unimpressed with him, but we aren't. It's time for our weekly visit with ESPN's Jason Fitz. We do not have Jason Fitz today. Because Jason Fitz just texted me. 
Got called in last second for Greeny on the air right now. Jason Finn stood us up for Mike Greenberg. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, we'll stick with the Raiders, though, because news this morning from Miami. Tua is out. Fractured ribs for Tua. He is not going to play this weekend. Instead, it will be Jacoby Brissett at quarterback for the Miami Dolphins this week. Uh, Adam, how big of a difference do you think that actually makes? Here's what's going to happen. Everyone's going to look at this and say, oh, wow, backup quarterback coming in for the Miami Dolphins. And I'm going to look at it and say, I think the Dolphins have a better chance to win this game with Jacoby Brissett at quarterback than with Tua Tagovailoa, Because with Jacoby Brissett, Miami knows exactly what it has, right? Uh, this is a quarterback who is an average middle-of-the-pack quarterback who is not going to try and do too much, who is just going to stay within a system and not make a lot of, of turnovers and not be someone who does what Tua did in week one, which is spin around like a top, heave a ball in the air, and give New England a chance to win the game before they fumbled it back in the fourth quarter. So you, know, you go back and look at, uh, Jacoby Brissett over his time as a starting quarterback in the NFL, which, of course, was brief in 2019. He was an average quarterback, graded out around 60. Um, I don't expect that Miami's going to try to do too much of them. I think the playbook will be scaled back, and they're going to try to win this game uh, with defense. Can they possibly win the game just going quarterback sneak Hail Mary like he was used in Indy last year? And has been used uh, this year as the quarterback sneak <laughs> guy as well uh, in Miami. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, the Dolphins came into Las Vegas last year with Fitzmagic at quarterback, got the world's most ridiculous completion at the end of the game and ended up winning. Um, and it just goes to show that John Gruden plays more one-score games than just about any other head coach in the NFL. And the Raiders can win close games like they have in the first two, or they can lose close games. And I think Miami's the kind of team that wants to play them on that ground, I think what's going to be really interesting uh, is going to be seeing the cornerbacks uh, for Miami against these receivers for the Raiders, right? If Miami does what other teams have tried to do and take Darren Waller out of the equation, then are Henry Ruggs, Brian Edwards, Hunter Renfro going to be able to win one-on-one -on -one against a really good group of corners, uh, including Byron Jones and Xavier Howard? So I think that's where it is. So are you a believer that Edwards and Ruggs are better this year? Or is it back to our conversation earlier about Carr taking more shots down the field, about Carr standing in the pocket and willing to take a hit more often to deliver a pass down the field? Am I a believer that they are the answer necessarily for the Raiders? No, I think everything's been done by scheme. But I think you don't have to have Henry Ruggs and Brian Edwards do much more than be healthy the, to have Derek Carr as a quarterback more willing to push the ball, Darren Waller as a receiving threat who's going to draw multiple defenders a lot of the time for them to be better. So do they need to be the guys that they were drafted as? No, they, they really don't, especially Henry Ruggs, because we, we talked about this on Monday to say, if you look at what the Raiders have gotten out of their draft picks, whether it's Ruggs and Edwards or whether it's Damon Arnett and Cleve Furrow, it ain't much. But this year, what we've seen is that the free agent additions actually have been 
pretty good for them on the defensive side of the ball. And I think that's going to be the, the thing that has to continue for them. Um, so, you know, are Ruggs and Edwards the answer? Not necessarily, but they're not part of the problem right now either. Yeah, they don't because Darren Waller exists. Neither one of them has to develop into that guy's the number one option. That guy's got to be who defenses are worried about. That's going to be Darren Waller, but there's got to be some level of competency. And we've seen that through two weeks. Granted, Brian Edwards almost didn't have a single catch in the game if Lamar Jackson gets another two yards on third down and they kick a field goal as time expires, but Brian Edwards into the fourth and in overtime was very good. And Henry Ruggs had a very good uh, week too. But I think at the end of the day, it's still, it's still a big question mark is whether this offense can continue to do this because last year, you know, it's actually funny. We, I forgot to bring this up at seven o'clock when we're talking about this team being two and oh, and how much do you believe in them? The Raiders last year started the year two and oh, and by EPA expected points added. The Raiders offense last year was second in the NFL in EPA per play after two weeks last season. Second in the NFL. The offense was awesome after two weeks. They fell off. They were still a good offense last year, but they fell off quite a bit after that. So that to me is where you sort of look at and say, okay, we have seen this before. We have seen the offense have a couple of weeks at a time where they're awesome but it doesn't always keep up and whether or not Ruggs and Edwards are competent, good wide receivers and whether or not Carr continues to give them the opportunities that he has might go a long way in determining if they can stay as high as they are offensively. Yeah, and I haven't had a chance to, to dive in on those numbers, but I would bet you they were running the ball more efficiently uh, in yes. those first couple of weeks last year, as opposed to the way they've done it this time. Um, if you look at those first two games from last year, it's kind of been bizarro world in reverse of what these two games have been this year, right? You look at the Carolina game and the Carolina game from last year was kind of the Baltimore game from this year where you win a one score game in which the other team did things to give it away to you at the end. I think we can all famously remember the Carolina game uh, where Christian McCaffrey had been carving up the Raiders in week one and then they decided on fourth and one with a chance to go down and win the game to hand it to the fullback uh and uh, that obviously didn't go anywhere wait, wait, so that was the you, one where you continue yeah can you, you gotta can go you fullback can you remember the fullback's name no i cannot okay i can't either i was i was hoping you remembered no i can't either okay. no no <laughs> and then you and, and then no i'm actually glad that my brain is using that space for other more important things but um you know Drew Brees, Ben Roethlisberger, aging quarterbacks with good defenses, uh, and the Raiders won those games uh, last year against New Orleans on Monday night, 34-24, and this year against the Pittsburgh Steelers, 26-17. So, you know, again, I, I do think there are more reasons to believe in what the Raiders have done thus far this year than in past years. And if you look back at their schedule from last year, um, I don't think we expected it to shape up this way, but having a stretch where you played uh, just about all of the great teams in the NFL over four weeks is not going to happen again this year, right? They, they, they went and played Buffalo and Kansas city and, um, and uh, Cleveland and I mean, over and over again for, for about a month. And they're not going to have that coming up again this year. So I guess the question is with, uh, three wild card spots. How many wins is it going to take to get in? If it's going to take 10 wins, I'm still not sure. If it's going to take nine, I think this team has a decent chance. The Panthers fullback was Alex Armuth. If not you how say you so. It. No, no, 
There's no T in his last name. You're right. I just assumed Jared gotten punched at a Waffle House and had the wind whistling between his teeth. Too mean. Jared Maybe. just spent five minutes trying to find the fullback's name, found it, and still mispronounced it when he talked. Man's been kicked out of two Waffle Houses. I thought I was on track. So Alex Arma, the fullback, they got two carries in that game against the Raiders and got four the rest of the season. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Carolina managed to lose a game because of it. So Actually, you you know, want, here's a fun stat for you. Yeah. Last year, Alex Arma had four carries. Five, or excuse me, six carries. Five went for first downs. Hey, I remember which one didn't. Um, you know, the uh, the Miami Dolphins this year, by the way, uh, as we look at who's coming in this week, um, the Miami Dolphins were absolutely abysmal last week, and they were very fortunate to win in week one as their formula from 2020, which is try to play good defense and hope turnover luck goes your way, worked out for them against New England. So, Realistically, the Raiders being four-point favorites, which will probably grow with Tua being out, um, it feels about right. And I think as opposed to last year when the Dolphins came here, I think we have to look at this one as this is a game the Raiders should be winning. Yeah, those are the ones they tend to lose, isn't it? Like, this is we've done this before. We just did this last year when they were 6-3, and three, and it was like, look at how soft the schedule is. They're going to make the playoffs. They should be winning these games. And they got to eight wins. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, Greg Williams is not on the slate of defensive coordinators <laughs> this year, so it could get even tougher. But, you know, th- look, eventually they have to be a team that wins games that it should win if they're going to make the playoffs. Uh, hashtag analysis. Let me ask you about the AFC East. How far ahead of New England is Buffalo? Farther than you think. Um The Buffalo Bills have not been awful through two weeks, right? Pittsburgh put the crush pass rush on them in week one, and Josh Allen didn't play all that well. Josh Allen wasn't great last week, but, you know, I'm not going to argue with the quarterback wasn't great when they went 35 to nothing. So Buffalo, I think, will be fine in the end. I'm still not much of a believer in what New England is putting out there. I mean, look what they've played against so far. Zach Wilson and the ghost of Tua. So, you know, I'm going to need to see a little bit more of New England before I say that they're on par at all with Buffalo. Oh, poor Zach Wilson. I kind of feel bad for him. Explain why, because I'm not sure. Through four picks in a game against the Patriots. He's playing for the Jets. I feel bad for anybody that's got to go play for the Jets. Adam, he follows his mom on Instagram. A lot of pronouns involved there, but I'll take that as Tyler following Zach Wilson's mom on Instagram. That is correct. Okay, I wasn't sure if it was Zach Wilson following Tyler's mom on Instagram, which would have been way more notable. Does Zach Wilson follow his own mom on Instagram? I wouldn't follow her if if she was my mom. Oh, oh, shots fired. I really like, do you like being uncomfortable with like comments being said about your mom? Um, do I, yeah, that's a, that's a really involved question. Um, so, uh, I don't believe that any professional athlete's mother should be a key figure in their personality uh, in front of the media. How about that? All right. Coming up next, I think we have the best story you could ever possibly have from college football bloggers.
Join Colfield and Company every Monday night at Twin Peaks on Eastern for Monday Night Football. Party gets started at 2 o'clock with the live broadcast of Colfield and Company and takes you all the way up until kickoff. Colfield will be on site handing out prizes until 7.30. So make sure you head by Twin Peaks on Eastern for Monday Night Football with Colfield and Company. Now, the world of college football is sometimes a great one. We have a website called Buckeye Scoop that covers Ohio State football. And Awful Announcing had a story yesterday about what the hell is going on with Buckeye Scoop, uh, where there's a former Ohio State player named Kirk Barton and a message board poster who goes by the name of Nevada Buck. Uh, They were both fired by Buckeye Scoop and are now being sued over what they allegedly did. Here is what the lawsuit says uh, Barton and Nevada Buck did. Barton took $7,500 from Buckeye Scoop and purchased a vehicle. Barton then added that car dealership's ads to the Buckeye Scoop website, but Buckeye Scoop says they never got any ad money from the dealership. Uh, Barton also put ads from a freight lining company on the site, and Buckeye Scoop says that they never received ad money from them either, though the owner of that freight company says he did pay Barton $5,000. In a fantasy football league for subscribers to the site, Barton would alter the lineups at halftime of the games to favor his and his wife's teams. Uh, Barton was also in charge of selling Buckeye Scoop's merchandise, and Buckeye Scoop's never received any of the money from their merchandise sales. And probably the worst of all of it, Barton and this uh, Nevada Buck the message board poster here, they allegedly paid an injured Ohio State player for information. Ohio State became suspicious of what this injured player was doing because all of a sudden he was watching film of practice of every single position group. This player was eventually kicked off the team because Ohio State found out what was happening. And Ohio State uh, threatened to pull the credentials of Buckeye Scoop And this was apparently the last straw that led to Buckeye Scoop firing and suing Barton and this message board poster. Aside from the kid that was at Ohio State that got kicked off the team because he got caught up in this, this is like the quintessential college football blogger story, and it's the best way to describe how insane college football message boards and bloggers are in this country. And yet there are still parts of it, Tyler, that even as much as we know about the disgusting message board culture of college sports that are shocking, right? Like there are still parts of this, especially the part about paying the injured player. I know you said, you know, except for that, but I have to start there. Yeah. Um, this is exactly note for note what those who say that betting on college sports should be banned point to. This is exactly it, that you would find some vulnerable kid who really doesn't know much about much because he's injured and he's not playing, but he has access to all of the information that you would need in order to know something about the team that others don't to maybe be able to bet on them and bet on them in a more successful way or bet against them for uh, what the point is. Now, the other parts of this, here's the thing everyone's going to be really offended about because we can all relate to this. You changed the fantasy football lineups at halftime? Did you think no one would notice? Did you think nobody would notice like, huh, 
I thought I started Aaron Jones, but apparently I had Ramondre <laughs> Stevenson. I had no idea. Crazy how that works. So I, I don't know, man. You you deal with these folks a lot more than I do, but um, I, I am equally uh, I am equally shocked and not shocked at the same time. Fantasy football culture is checking it every single time your running back has a three yard carry to make sure you got the point three points, and they were changing it at halftime like nobody would notice that there's now suddenly brand new players <laughs> in the starting lineup. Like of all the things they did, that was the most obvious one they were going to get caught doing. Like the other stuff, yeah, hiding money from your company, yeah, that's probably bad, but I could see how you think you might get away with that. But there is no chance you could get away with changing the lineup of your fantasy football team or your opponent's fantasy football team at halftime. Everyone would know instantly that you were screwing them. 